Section 18 of Bullfinch's The Legends of Charlemagne. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Age of Charlemagne by Thomas Bullfinch. Section 18. Rogero and Bradamante. Part 1. After the interruption of the combat with Rinaldo, as we have related, Rogero was perplexed with doubts what course to take. The terms of the treaty required him to abandon Agramont, who had broken it, and to transfer his allegiance to Charlemagne, and his love for Bradamante called him in the same direction, but unwillingness to desert his prince and leader in the hour of distress forbade this course. Embarking therefore for Africa, he took his way to rejoin the Saracen army, but was arrested midway by a storm which drove the vessel on a rock. The crew took to their boat, but that was quickly swamped in the waves, and Rogero, with the rest, were compelled to swim for their lives. Then, while buffeting the waves, Rogero bethought himself of his sin in so long delaying his Christian profession, and vowed in his heart that, if he should live to reach the land, he would no longer delay to be baptized. His vows were heard and answered. He succeeded in reaching the shore, and was aided and relieved on landing by a pious hermit whose cell overlooked the sea. From him he received baptism, having first passed some days with him, partaking his humble fare, and receiving instruction in the doctrines of the Christian faith. While these things were going on, Rinaldo, who had set out on his way to seek Gradasso and recover Bayard from him, hearing on his way of the great things which were doing in Africa, repaired thither to bear his part in them. He arrived too late to do more than join his friends in lamenting the loss of Florismart, and to rejoice with them in their victory over the pagan knights. On the death of their king, the Africans gave up the contest. Biserta submitted, and the Christian knights had only to dismiss their forces and return home. Astolfo took leave of his Abyssinian army, and sent them back laden with spoil to their own country, not forgetting to entrust to them the bag which held the winds, by means of which they were enabled to cross the sandy desert again without danger, and did not untie it till they reached their own country. Orlando now, with Oliver, who much needed the surgeon's care, and Sobrino, to whom equal attention was shown, sailed in a swift vessel to Sicily, bearing with him the body of Florismart, to be laid in a Christian earth. Rinaldo accompanied them, as did Sansonet and the other Christian leaders. Arrived at Sicily, the funeral was solemnized with all the rites of religion, and with the profound grief of those who had known Florismart, or had heard of his fame. Then they resumed their course, steering for Marseilles. But Oliver's wound grew worse instead of better, and his suffering so distressed his friends that they conferred together not knowing what to do. Then said the pilot, We are not far from an isle where a holy hermit dwells alone in the midst of the sea. It is said none seek his counsel or his aid in vain. He hath wrought marvellous cures, and if you resort to that holy man without doubt he can heal the knight. Orlando bade him steer thither, and soon the bark was laid safely beside the lonely rock. The wounded man was lowered into their boat, and carried by the crew to the hermit's cell. It was the same hermit with whom Rogero had taken refuge after his shipwreck, by whom he had been baptized, and with whom he was now staying, absorbed in sacred studies and meditations. The holy man received Orlando and the rest with kindness, and inquired their errand, and being told that they had come for help for one who, warring for the Christian faith, 
was brought to perilous pass by a sad wound, he straightway undertook the cure. His applications were simple, but they were seconded by his prayers. The paladin was soon relieved from pain, and in a few days his foot was perfectly restored to soundness. Sobrino, as soon as he perceived the holy monk perform that wonder, cast aside his false prophet, and with contrite heart owned the true God, and demanded baptism at his hands. The hermit granted his request, and also by his prayers restored him to health, while all the Christian knights rejoiced in his conversion almost as much as at the restoration of Oliver. More than all, Rogero felt joy and gratitude, and daily grew in grace and faith. Rogero was known by fame to all the Christian knights, but not even Rinaldo knew him by sight, though he had proved his prowess in combat. Sobrino made him known to them, and great was the joy of all when they found one whose valor and courtesy were renowned through the world, no longer an enemy and unbeliever, but a convert and champion of the true faith. All press about the knight. One grasped his hand, another locks him fast in his embrace. But more than all the rest, Rinaldo cherished him, for he more than any knew his worth. It was not long before Rogero confided to his friend the hopes he entertained of a union with his sister, and Rinaldo frankly gave his sanction to the proposal. But causes unknown to the paladin were at that very time interposing obstacles to its success. The fame of the beauty and worth of Bradamante had reached the ears of the Grecian emperor, Constantine, and he had sent to Charlemagne to demand the hand of his niece for Leo, his son, and the heir to his dominions. Duke Aemon, her father, had only reserved his consent until he should first have spoken with his son Rinaldo, now absent. The warriors now prepared to resume their voyage. Rogero took a tender farewell of the good hermit who had taught him the true faith. Orlando restored to him the horse and arms which were rightly his, not even asserting his claim to Balisarda, that sword which he himself had won from the enchantress. The hermit gave his blessing to the band, and they re-embarked. The passage was speedy, and very soon they arrived in the harbour of Marseilles. Astolfo, when he had dismissed his troops, mounted the hippogriff, and at one flight shot over to Sardinia, thence to Corsica, thence, turning slightly to the left, hovered over Provence, and alighted in the neighbourhood of Marseilles. There he did what he had been commanded to do by the Holy Spirit. He unbridled the hippogriff, and turned him loose to seek his own retreats, never more to be galled with saddle or bit. The horn had lost its marvellous power ever since the visit to the moon. Astolfo reached Marseilles the very day when Orlando, Rinaldo, Oliver, Sobrino, and Rogero arrived there. Charles had already heard the news of the defeat of the Saracen kings, and all the accompanying events. On learning the approach of the gallant knights, he sent forward some of his most illustrious nobles to receive them, and himself, with the rest of his court, kings, dukes, and peers, the queen, and a fair and gorgeous band of ladies, set forth from Arles to meet them. No sooner were the mutual greetings interchanged than Orlando and his friends led forward Rogero, and presented him to the emperor. They vouched him son of Rogero, Duke of Risa, one of the most renowned of Christian warriors, by adverse fortune stolen in his infancy, and brought up by Saracens in the false faith, now by a kind providence converted, and restored to fill the place his father once held among the foremost champions of the throne and church. Rogero had alighted from his horse, and stood respectfully before the emperor. Charlemagne bade him remount and ride beside him, and omitted nothing which might do him honour inside of his martial train. 
With pomp triumphal and with festive cheer, the troop returned to the city. The streets were decorated with garlands, the houses hung with rich tapestry, and flowers fell like rain upon the conquering host from the hands of fair dames and damsels, from every balcony and window. So welcomed, the mighty emperor passed on till he reached the royal palace, where many days he feasted, high in hall, with his lords, amid tourney, revel, dance, and song. When Rinaldo told his father, Duke Amon, how he had promised his sister to Ruggiero, his father heard him with indignation, having set his heart on seeing her united to the Grecian emperor's son. The lady Beatrice, her mother, also appealed to Bradamante herself to reject a knight who had neither title nor lands, and give the preference to one who would make her empress of the wide Levant. But Bradamante, though respect forbade her to refuse her mother's entreaty, would not promise to do what her heart repelled, and answered only with a sigh, until she was alone, and then gave loose to tears. Meanwhile Rogero, indignant that a stranger should presume to rob him of his bride, determined to seek the prince of Greece, and defy him to mortal combat. With this design he donned his armor, but exchanged his crest and emblazement, and bore instead a white unicorn upon a crimson field. He chose a trusty squire, and, commanding him not to address him as Rogero, rode on his quest. Having crossed the Rhine and the Austrian countries into Hungary, he followed the course of the Danube till he reached Belgrade. There he saw the imperial ensigns spread, and white pavilions, thronged with troops, before the town. For the Emperor Constantine was laying siege to the city to recover it from the Bulgarians, who had taken it from him not long before. A river flowed between the camp of the Emperor and the Bulgarians, and at the moment when Rogero appeared, a skirmish had begun between the parties from either camp, who had approached the stream for the purpose of watering. The Greeks in that affray were four to one, and drove back the Bulgarians in precipitate rout. Rogero, seeing this, and animated only by his hatred of the Grecian prince, dashed into the middle of the flying mass, calling aloud on the fugitives to turn. He encountered first a leader of the Grecian host in splendid armor, a nephew of the emperor, as dear to him as a son. Rogero's lance pierced shield and armor, and stretched the warrior breathless on the plain. Another and another fell before him, and astonishment and terror arrested the advance of the Greeks, while the Bulgarians, catching courage from the cavalier, rally, change front, and chase the Grecian troops, who fly in their turn. Leo, the prince, was at a distance, when this sudden skirmish rose, but not so far but that he could see distinctly, from an elevated position, which he held, how the changed battle was all the work of one man, and could not choose but admire the bravery and prowess with which it was done. He knew by the blazonry displayed that the champion was not of the Bulgarian army, though he furnished aid to them. Although he suffered by his valor, the prince could not wish him ill, for his admiration surpassed his resentment. By this time the Greeks had regained the river, and crossing it by fording or swimming, some made their escape, leaving many more prisoners in the hands of the Bulgarians. Rogero, learning from some of the captives that Leo was at a point some distance down the river, rode thither with a view to meet him, but arrived not before the Greek prince had repaired beyond the stream, and broken up the bridge. Day was spent, and Rogero, wearied, looked round for a shelter for the night. He found it in a cottage, where he soon yielded himself to repose. It so happened, a knight who had narrowly escaped Rogero's sword in the late battle also found shelter in the same cottage, and recognizing the armor of the unknown knight, easily found means of securing him as he slept, 
and next morning carried him in chains and delivered him to the emperor. By him he was in turn delivered to his sister Theodora, mother of the young knight, the first victim of Rogero's spear. By her he was cast into a dungeon, till her ingenuity could devise a death sufficiently painful to satiate her revenge. Bradamant, meanwhile, to escape her father's and mother's importunity, had begged a boon of Charlemagne, which the monarch pledged his royal word to grant. It was that she should not be compelled to marry any one unless he should first vanquish her in single combat. The emperor therefore proclaimed a tournament in these words. He that would wed Duke Amon's daughter must contend with the sword against that dame, from the sun's rise to his setting, and if in that time he is not overcome, the lady shall be his. Duke Amon and the Lady Beatrice, though much incensed at the course things had taken, brought their daughter to court, to await the day appointed for the tournament. Bradamant, not finding there him whom her heart required, distressed herself with doubts what could be the cause of his absence. Of all fancies, the most painful one was that he had gone away to learn to forget her, knowing her father's and her mother's opposition to their union, and despairing to contend against them. But, oh, how much worse would be the maiden's woe, if it were known to her what her betrothed was then enduring. He was plunged in a dungeon where no ray of daylight ever penetrated, loaded with chains, and scantily supplied with the coarsest food. No wonder despair took possession of his heart, and he longed for death as a relief, when one night, or one day, for both were equally dark to him, he was roused with the glare of a torch and saw two men enter his cell. It was the Prince Leo, with an attendant, who had come as soon as he had learned the wretched fate of the brave knight whose valour he had seen and admired on the field of battle. Cavalier, said he, I am one whom thy valour hath so bound to thee, that I willingly peril my own safety to lend thee aid. Infinite thanks I owe you, replied Rogero, and the life you give me I promise faithfully to render back upon your call, and promptly to stake it at all times for your service. The prince then told Rogero his name and rank, at hearing which a tide of contending emotions almost overwhelmed Rogero. He was set at liberty, and had his horse and arms restored to him. End of section 18